Good morning, Interweb. Welcome back to the RFXian podcast. In this month's episode, Bill and I cook an ancient Greek breakfast and chat about assorted Greek culinary traditions. Trigger warning, chewing noises incoming. Halloween is just around the corner, so things get a bit spooky in Cairn with the tale of the Basking Mall. All that, plus lots more, in this month's episode. It is food time, Bill. Food time. We have we have uh, traveled through time from ancient Mesopotamia and Rome uh, to like ancient Greece, and you and I have cooked up a uh, air, air quotes breakfast for everyone from ancient Greece mm-hmm. from the book um, "Cooking in Ancient Civilizations" by Katty K. Kaufman. Um, do you have pictures of this that you can send me? Actually. I I do. I have I have a picture. I'll I'll just I'll text it to you. I have a picture of the finished product, and I have a couple of in progress shots. Ooh, uh, that would be great. Um, listeners, uh, chapter art. The video will have the various food items up as we uh, consume them, talk about them, etc. Um, how many of these items did you make, Bill? I have I have four dishes in front of me. Do you also have four? Uh, I don't have them as four separate dishes, but I have made, um, oh, hold on. I've made several things. I couldn't fully make one of the things. Um, I, I guess, it can, yeah, I guess I've got, I've got, actually, you could maybe say five. Five? Okay, we need to talk I about think what, so. We need to talk about what we've made here. Uh, can I get um, uh, images off you that aren't just in-progress shots? Absolutely not. <laughs> Villa sent me an image of his kitchen. Essentially, with lots of stuff co- stuff cooking, I see I see some bread being made. I see what looks like cheese being boiled. I see a what I think is a bottle of Fanta. Um, I really hope that's not what I think it is because that it's looks wildly. You know the red Fanta. <laughs> it's not a bottle of Fanta, Edgar. Uh, Although the, the the there used to be that pomegranate Fanta that was very very tasty, which was kind of a similar color, but. Cool. So I got I got the pick now. So we have made both of us have made uh, folded wheat bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see that on your dish again. For folks, there's images throughout the videos and on the chapter art. Uh, both of us have made um, fresh cheese with olive oil and herbs, and I believe both of us have made our own cheese. Correct. I've made my own cheese. Excellent. Then we have a pea porridge and salt fish. Um, Our ones look remarkably similar, which we'll get into. I see no salt fish on your end. I have no salt fish. I could not find salt fish. I I have salt fish and I'm the vegetarian. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Then we have uh, fresh slash dried fruits. I'm I'm assuming you just picked them up in a store like I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then uh, you seem to have a small thing of honey, um, which I do not have with me. And you also have oxycraton or oxycraton. I can't pronounce uh, Greek correctly. It's like this vinegar, watered down vinegar drink, which I am mm-hmm. really reticent to try. Um, but here we are. Um, so those are the things. What are your? What's your extra dish? Are you counting the honey as being the fifth dish? Um, I think I got to four somehow, and then. Thought that that the oxycrotton was the fifth one, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I was thinking of. Hmm. So we've oh no, hold on! I've got bread, fruit, cheese, and porridge. That's four. 
and then the, the oxycodone is five. Oh yeah, yeah. I guess I have the same thing. So we've made we've basically yeah. we've made the same thing, which is great. Okay. Yeah. So now what I propose to do is I propose that we're gonna we'll, 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 you and I will pick one of the things, we'll eat one of the things, talk about our experiences, and then go through each of the, the dishes bring up any interesting points and thereafter talk more broadly about like greek culinary culture uh, culture as this book puts forward yeah mm-hmm. okay sure. so let's start with the bread all right okay i have not tasted any of my food and i'm starving <laughs> um let's have a go at this bread hmm that's all right that's not bad Mm. The the addition of yeast really helps compared to now, the last. I time. had a little bit of difficulty with it um, sticking as I was trying to transfer it to the skillet. Um, I actually lost like a quarter of of what I'd made because um, trying to pull it out and then pull it and I pulled it too much and it began to kind of fall apart. And so the first thing I tried to fry in the skillet was um, a disaster, but. Uh, once I got the structural integrity under control, yeah, this is tasty. What's a what's a skillet? Um, it's a kind of frying pan. Mm. But it's not like a normal frying pan. I don't know what the distinction is, to be honest. But I, when I bought this, it was called a uh, a bronze skillet. Oh, oh, a, cop- oh. a copper skillet. Oh, wait, hang on, hang on. And so, have you got a picture of your copper skillet? Um, you could probably see it in the pictures I sent you. But sure, that looks like a frying pan. Yes, that's what I said. It's a type of frying pan. Oh. And I don't know what the distinction that makes it specifically a skillet is. Oh, that's amazing. All right, because like I, I saw the recipe for folks here. The the bread is like, you mix, just really quick run on the, on the recipe. You mix some like uh, wheat flour with plain flour, put some yeast in it, fold it up a little bit, let it rise. And then you like flatten it out into these kind of rounds and then you uh, fry it um, quite quite aggressively and uh, for a very short amount of time over a skillet. Yeah. And I was like, I don't have a skillet. I thought in my head that skillets were those kind of square-shaped pans that have the ridges along mm. the bottom. That's what I thought that was. So I was like, oh, I guess I'm just going to have to fry it. Um, like, you know, you fry other sort of things. So I, that's great. That maybe Maybe I did, in fact, have a skillet. And it just didn't know it. That's awesome. Excellent. Much, much better than Mesopotamia. God, the yeast really makes a... It makes a hell of a difference. And I think I said it last time. It may not be as, like, structurally nice as, like, store-bought breads. But it is really class that, like, when you do make your own bread, you can really control, like, how it tastes. So mine is, like, Mm. nice and salty. Like a tangy sort of thing. And that you just don't get from store-bought bread. So that's really good. All right. So that is a fold of wheat bread. Next up, let's move <laughs> on to let's move on to the next hot dish. I'm presuming yours is, is hot. This is the um, the pea porridge and salt fish, right? And optional salt fish. And optional salt fish. And I know I say I'm vegetarian and I'm trying salt fish. I'm taking one for the team here. Oh, no. Nope. No, that's awful. No for the fish or? No for, yeah, it's the fish. Oh my God. 
That is the saltiest. <laughs> Did you soak it overnight? Would it be bad if I lied and said yes? It would be bad to lie. <laughs> no, I didn't. I soaked it for a couple hours and I right. was like, ah, does this really make a difference? So then Did I, you change the water during the soaking? Uh, would it be bad if I lied and said yes? It's bad to lie, Edgar. <laughs> no, I, I did not change the water. I just let it sit in the same water for, uh, I was like a couple hours and yeah. then, and then just washed the fish. Oh. Yeah, that'll make that'll make a big difference to to change the water and soak it for longer. Jesus Christ! It's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> what does yours taste like? Um. Oh. It's, it's like peas. To be honest, just kind of like straight straight up peas. Yeah, I mean, I mean the porridge. It's fine. Sorry, sorry. Go on. It's fine. The porridge part, I think, is okay. And again, for people, the way that they um, the the way that they um, wrote on the recipe was basically you just get some like lentil pea type things, um, and just reduce it in some water. So you get like a, a porridge, a current pea porridge, and then you're meant to um, like I think it was skillet fry again. I think uh, it was some salted cod that you've you've um, uh, left soaking overnight and then you flake the cod over the peas and then put some marjoram on on top um and some olive oil that sounds so much nicer than what it is in executed jesus christ and maybe it's just because i eat i really don't eat meat at all maybe just the taste of meat is a bit like blech. i don't know were you a big fish guy even before you were i, um, I did vegetarian. like i did like fish i did like fish but sometimes some fish can just be a little bit too fishy. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes some fish can turn into dumb fish. And that's when you put your foot down. <laughs> Is that a reference that I don't understand? It's a Limp Bizkit lyric. Oh, I changed one of the words to fish. Yeah, but... Oh, it's just so salty. Damn it. My yeah, God. Mine is kind of... It said in, in the recipe, like, simmer for 45 minutes. And I'm pretty sure I did that, and um, it was only beginning to to disintegrate when I when I took it off the heat and, and had to serve it up. So there's still it's it's like slightly slightly chunky porridge, mm. um, but it's 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 fine. It's it's a little bland because there's nothing, there's no fish or anything with it. Um, uh, it's literally just I, I could, boiled peas. I could conceivably eat this with other things. With folded wheat bread, perhaps. Let's try it. <laughs> also, uh, in the book, they were saying that it's like um, wine usually wasn't consumed during the like eating part of the meal. Oh. And wine was left till till afterwards. Uh, they call it the second table. I'll get to it more in a little bit. Um, kind of like how in like posh, like aristocratic, uh, aristocratic English society, um, they'd have like a big formal dinner and then they'd all like retire to the drawing room for their brandies. Um, mm. that apparently was a thing in, at least I think it was in Athenian Greece. So I'm trying to like channel my inner ancient Greek here and not drink anything during the formal eating part here. Uh, so 
this salt fish is going to stay with me for a little bit because I'm taking one for the team. That is. No, I've I've already been kicked out of the of the feast. I've I've had many a gulp. <laughs> we should, we'll talk. Well, maybe we should talk about. No, no, we'll talk about Oxycrat on least uh, the last of all. Uh, now, so that's that one. I give this. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. If if the salt fish was cr- uh, made properly, it'd be fine. Um, but also, I couldn't find salt cod. I should say I went to so many like butchers and fishmongery places. And the best I found was a dried, smoked flatfish from the Lithuanian shop. Um, and I'm not entirely sure if that's, like, the same thing. Like, I know it's not cod, but, like, salted cod, from Google seemed to tell me, was, like, a dried, salt-cured fish. Yeah. Um, and this flatfish seemed the same thing. It was dried and it was called salty, dried flatfish. And so I figure it's the same thing, just a different species. Mm. But man, is it weird dealing with them. Like, I just had these, like, fish carcasses in my kitchen. Very odd. Just lying there. <laughs> I had to dispose of fins and stuff, and I felt real, real icky doing it. But here we are. Um, next up, some fresh cheese with olive oil and herbs. I have high what? hopes for this. What herbs did you put on yours? Uh, I, I put chives. Oh, my God, this cheese is rock hard. Is your cheese rock hard? No. My cheese is like a, like a, oh my God, it's impossible to pry apart. <laughs> oh no. Okay. Okay. Uh, I put chives on it because it was the only like uh, non-dried herby type thing that my local shop had. All right. What did you put on it? Pardon me. Um, rosemary from my garden at home. And uh, basil from my kitchen. Mm. That's nice. What's yours taste like? Pretty bland, I have to say. Pretty bland. Oh no, I really like this. This is really good. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it doesn't really taste of much in mine. It's just mm-hmm. there's a little, there's a little mild, a little mild kind of goat's cheesy tang at the back. Yeah, did you did you use the recipe called for goats or sheep's milk? Did you use either? Yeah, I use goat goat's milk. Yeah, same. We went and got some goat's milk. I, I the the thing about this that I thought was really great this recipe, um, for the the fresh cheese was um you didn't need to use any of the cheese making enzymes. You literally just boil some milk, put some white wine vinegar in it, then it curdles up, and then that's it. Mm. That's your cheese. That's a yeah. baller way of making cheese because the previous time was, it was fine, but it required a specialist ingredients like the enzymes, the rennet or rennet. Um, and also you have to like very, pre- rennet, yeah. yeah, you have to very precisely control um, temperature and how long a thing is at a certain temperature. This is idiot proof. Just heat up some milk and chuck in some vinegar and you're done. Um, that- so strictly speaking, your last one wasn't vegetarian either. Uh, no, 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 that was, because you can get, um, like, vegan rennet. Oh, okay. Um, I got mine in, like, a, a, um, a fancy schmancy health food store, and, uh, like, I bought it for specific reason. I said vegan on it. Sorry, my mouth's full of cheese. <laughs> a good problem to have. That is great. That, that I really like. That tastes really, really nice. Um... The final thing, it's hardly worth a review, but like some um, some dried fruit. Let's have some dried fruit. 
What dried fruit do you have there, Bill? I have raisins and figs. I bought some currants. Do you want to know why? Do tell. Because on the packet it said Greek currants. And I was like, <laughs> appropriate. Now, I'm not sure if that means that like, these are like Greek currants TM, or the Greek is like an adjective. Like these are currants that happen to be grown in Greece. Or like Greek currants are their own special little thing. I have no idea, but these seem like currants. I was expecting more from them. I'm not getting it. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so overall, what do you think? In, in I'm assuming in relation to your last attempt at cooking the ancient Rome thing, this is a big step up. Um, There was less prior prep involved. And other than not being able to find the the salt cod um it was easier than yeah. like none of the butchers ha- butchers i went to for ages had the right kidneys uh there's it, it's quite involved i found the bread making you know it, it it required like a lot of i had i had to get up like 2 hours before i was eating to to make sure it was ready on time and stuff oh i made i made most of the stuff the night prefer- the night previous Maybe that's why my cheese is rock hard. Mm. Could be. Mm. So were you up at like seven a.m. Something like that. I got I I got up at eight. Yeah. Wow, Jesus, poor for for listeners. Bill was out gigging last night, so Bill is running on almost zero sleep here. I don't know how you do it. Slightly under four hours. No, no, no. Slightly, slightly over four hours. I do not understand how you do it. I'm like a zombie if I get any less than like 10 hours sleep. <laughs> I joke, I joke. Eight hours is what I usually aim to get. Um, it's madness. So I have to say, having this fig, um, I'm a big fan of fig rolls. Mm. How did you get the fig in the fig roll, man? I don't um, even understand why, sorry international listeners here, but like, I don't even understand why that's even a thing. That people asked. It makes no sense. Because like, quite clearly. Or maybe I'm hugely mistaken here. But the, the, the way to get the fig in the fig roll. Is that you put a base layer of like pastry. You put a layer of figgy stuff. And then you put the pastry on top of it. And then you cook it. And the pastry fuses. Like it seems very obvious. As to how one um, gets the fig in the fig roll. I, I don't think it's meant to be a serious inquiry. But like. no, I, I know. But, like, it's, like, it's so dumb, it's not funny. Do you know what I mean? I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. I don't know. Although, to be honest, I didn't think of it your way. I, I thought that the outer the outer layer was, like, one contiguous piece, so they just had the fig, and they wrapped it in the roll. Rolled it in the roll, if you will. Um, you could, you, yeah, you could do it that way. You could do it that yeah, way. Yeah, so that's what I always thought. I never considered that it might be a, a three-step thing. Mm. Uh, yeah, for, for North American listeners, I'm pretty sure fig rolls are the same thing as fig newtons. Fig newtons? Yeah. Don't like that phrase. Fig <laughs> newtons, that's blasphemous. A newton? What the... Stop it. Stop it. What is the etymology of newton? The, the guy who is he just first sold them in the states or something? I is think. he just a dude? Yeah, okay. No, it says here Charles Roser invented the process. Shows what I know. Wow, madness, Fig Newton, lol. Um, I'm with you on this. I think it, it this was easier than the Mesopotamian food. 
Um, yeah, because I think as well, like there wasn't as many obscure grains that I needed to get. The product was named after the city of Newton, Massachusetts. There we go. Mm. Sorry. No, it's okay. It's okay. Interjections are allowed. Nerdy interjections are allowed. I will permit them. Um, yeah, way easier to make than the last time. Less obscure, obscure, um, obscure ingredients to get, and also because you know there seems to be more written about Greek culinary history. It seemed to be um, a, a lot more solid, you know, because the last time it was kind of like, well, we don't really know how the Mesopotamians made bread, but here's a good guess. Whereas this yeah. was like Herodotus once had a play or something where he talked through the exact recipe of making folded wheat bread, and here it is, um, which made it feel kind of, um, I guess, more enjoyable to do because it really felt like you were attempting to recreate something that actually existed back in the day as opposed to like a pastiche of it or a uh, um yeah like a pastiche so i thought that was that was kind of fun um yeah the background info i think was also fun if we can move into that bill oh well, no no we no, no finished no, oxycraton let's drink this abomination Oy, okay here we go i want you to go first will you drink yours what color is yours can i ask Mine is well. You saw what color it is. Well, it was uh, it was in the shadow, and it was like in a, a metal thing, so it just looked kind of black. No, you saw it in the bottle. No, stop it! That's your oxycraton, the red drink. Yeah. What sort of wine did you use? Or what sort of? Vin- I used red wine vinegar. You use red. Okay, so I use white wine vinegar. So mine looks like murky water. Oh boy. Okay, will you taste yours and let me know how it goes? I will, but I have a caveat to put after this. So my caveat... Is? I've made this loads of times before and I really enjoy it. Oh, okay. You've made it loads of times before? Well, I made it according to a Roman recipe, what I called it Pasca. And you made this independently of the podcast? Yeah. Wow. Jesus, you're you're an oxycraton, uh, or oxycraton. I'm pretty sure it's oxycraton. Um connoisseur oh my god okay no, I, I may have made it slightly differently but i did it this way because i already had a recipe that i was i was familiar with and fond of oh so what was your your recipe um i'm going to double check what, what how they they make it here in in this let me find it um while bill is finding this the recipe in in the cooking in ancient civilizations is essentially you get um wine vinegar they actually didn't specify red or white i just thought white was more appropriate um, mainly because I had white in the house and didn't have red. Um, you take some of that and you dilute it with water. You can also use a thing called verjuice, which I don't really understand what that is and I couldn't find it. Um, but I get the impression it's like a vinegary type thing as well. Um, so you put this like wine vinegar, you dilute it in water a lot, and then um, you add in honey um, uh, as a sweetener. And apparently this was something that like all Greeks enjoyed of like all social stasis, like even poor people would would be drinking this sort of thing as well. And like I've refrained from drinking it, but the, just the mere thought and look of it is a little bit repulsive to me. So I, I, I want to hear more from Bill about like why he likes this and what he how he's made it, because like I'm I have no I don't have great hopes that this is going to be good. Oh no, no. So what I did was I, I used honey as well, but it does say this here. You can you can use honey to taste. 
So the the specific recipe I have is from a blog about uh, Roman cooking called Pass the Garum. Hmm. Um, and it gives a, a, a few various versions. So the first one is the simplest, which is two tablespoons of red wine vinegar in 250 milliliters of water. Eesh, that, that, is a, that, is, that is a strong concentration of vinegar to water there. Mm-hmm. My God. The next one is two tablespoons of vinegar and one tablespoon of honey to 250 mils of water. And then there's also one where you add coriander seed, um, oh. which I think would be, I, which I, I would I would enjoy the this kind of slight spiciness of it, but I think it would turn out kind of gritty. And anytime I tried it before, it was a little bit gritty, so I need to, you know, crush it better or something the next time. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I have made this, you know, okay, on, on occasion for, for years now. Wow, okay. Yeah. So, TLDR, you like it. Here goes nothing. Let me try. No, that, that's that's vile. <laughs> you Do you have any honey in it? Yeah. Oh, and I like, and my, and sorry, did, so the stuff that you're drinking now, mm-hmm. that's doing the two tablespoons to 250 milliliter ratio. Yeah. Like mine is I put in that quarter cup of vinegar and then I like filled it up to like a liter of water. Like I put in like 10 times the amount of water and I I, I drink it and it's still way too vinegary. You can taste the, the wine vinegar. Oh, that's... Bill, how are you drinking I, I, I think that might be kind of the problem is you can taste it but if it was stronger it would have more of an actual effect and more of a, like a refreshing effect i find it i find it really it's a kind of a weird uh, winter drink i find it a really really refreshing summer drink okay 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 we're we're going to go rogue with the podcast right so give me a recipe again so that's two tablespoons of vinegar can it can it can be white yeah the, the one I'm saying, I'm looking at, says red wine vinegar. I don't know how much of a difference there is. Okay, well, I don't have red, so we're just going to have yeah. to be right. So two tablespoons of that to 250 millis- milliliters of water, yeah? Yeah, and one tablespoon of honey. Okay. You entertain the listeners. I'll be back in five minutes. I'm going to remake this stronger, and we'll see how it goes, okay? I you, you can't leave me with that kind of responsibility. Well, it's too late. I'm already gone. Bye-bye. <laughs> Um, I hope you're all keeping well. And I hope that the sound of our eating hasn't been too off-putting for you. And also, I, I have a slight cold, so there have been um, some sniffs and coughs and apologies for that as well. Um, I never talked about the raisins when we were doing the, the dried fruit. I just went straight to the figs. Um... I'm a big fan of raisins. I know a lot of people aren't, which I've always found very curious. It's just, you know, they're they're sweet and they're tasty and they're nice in things. Um, cakes and, and like cookies and stuff. I've, I've always been a big fan of, of them there. Um, and we didn't talk about the fact that I have a, a little uh, sort of ramekin of honey here on, the, on the, the plate as well. The reason I included that is because lots of the recipes in the book and lots of the, the discussion in the book made reference to honey. So I thought it would just be appropriate to have something to, to dip some honey in. Probably quite extravagant, 
by by Greek standards, it, it would not maybe be for everyone. But you know, I thought it would be nice, and also so that the bread wouldn't be so so dry to eat. Another nice thing you can do with Pasca, or the Oxycraton, um, it can mix with fruit juices quite nicely. So I've I've done it before. Um, I went to a dinner party and someone had made, I think, a peach-based dessert. And there was loads of peach juice left over and we mixed the peach juice in with the Pasca. And that was delicious. That was really, really delicious. Um, full disclosure, I'm a big fan of vinegar. I like vinegary tastes. But this doesn't, um, you know, it doesn't feel the same. Maybe, possibly, as I said, because it's so concentrated. It's a different kind of effect. Um, it's very, very refreshing. Another curious cocktail that a lot of people are very, very skeptical of, but is actually very, very tasty, is called Calimocho. It's a mixture of, I think, 50-50 mixture of red wine and cola. So just like red wine and Coke. And it's a good way to use up cheap or old red wine. And again, a lot of people think that sounds absolutely rank, but it's very, very refreshing. Um... K-A-L-I-M-O-T-X-O, I believe it's spelled. Let's check that. Okay, well, I googled that the spelling and it did come up, but apparently some people also spell it C-A-L-I-M-O-C-H-O, which is uh, fair enough. I know, I prefer, I prefer the other way with the the Basque, the Basque orthography. Um, the T-X is a, is a ch sound. It is known as Katemba in South Africa. Katembe in Mozambique, Bambus in Croatia, Hote in Chile, and Jesus Juice in Argentina. Hello. That's... Hello, how's it going? Hi. Sorry, I was just I was just telling the, the listeners about Calimocho. About what? Calimocho. Calimocho. Yeah, what? I'm not going to go over it again. Just listen back and find out, Edgar. They don't, the people don't want to hear this again. Were you actually talking the entire time? I mean, there, there were pauses where I was thinking of things to say, but... Wow. Okay, cool. Well, I hope you enjoyed, listeners. Uh, okay, I'm back. Bill, this is, this looks revolting. Um, I'm going to ask, I need to ask a question, though. How did you mix this together? Um, so, I actually, I had some bottles of water, like, like big two-liter bottles of water already. But I, th- I think I bought them for the purpose of making... Um, Pasca <laughs> um, during the summer that I just never got around to using um, and I so I emptied out some of it so there'd be space and I mixed um, the rele- relevant amounts of honey and vinegar in just like a, a measuring jug and poured it in and then shook it up mm, okay so when you're drinking your oxycraton or Pasca or whatever is it like a slightly thick Juice, like, have you created? You know what? You know the way if you 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 shake um, mm-hmm. oils and water together, they form like a vinaigrette type thing. Is is your drink a vinaigrette type thing, or is it more there's like no oil in it? No, no, but like no, like if you put some vinegar, I'm pretty sure. Oh, there's no oil in it. No, it won't make a difference, will it? No, it won't make a difference if you stir it or shake it. No, okay, grand. Here we go. This is. The bill proportions. Oh, Jesus Christ. B- 
Bill, what's wrong with you? Oh. No, Gusta. You're drinking vinegar. This is awful. This is disgusting. Vinegar is delicious. Jesus Christ. It's so... Uh, <laughs> there is... I think the, the one nice thing about it is that as the vinegar vinegar goes down, it like tingles the back of your throat. Mm. That's quite nice. But like the taste is like, I don't want to drink vinegar. I would not describe this as being refreshing in any way, shape or form. Um, this is a bizarre drink. I don't like it. <laughs> I can't believe you like this. This is mad. <sighs> so... You, yeah, you were using the the blogged recipe for the oxycreta. Mm-hmm. Grand, okay. So I was about to say, I was going to ask, like, how uh, this recipe in Ancient Civilizations, the book, measures up with your usual, but you're you're, you're doing your usual. Um, okay. Because, it, I mean, it, it was so it was so vague in, in the book. It mm. was just a quarter cup of wine vinegar and water as needed. So it didn't actually kind of... Until yes. until a pleasant tartness is achieved, and mm-hmm. my response is there is no no pleasant tartness will ever be achieved. <laughs> it's so. Oh, just... no, definitely not. The cheese is great. Cheese and bread are great. <laughs> Everything else, barring the fruit, because we didn't make the fruit. A little bit sauce. Yeah. All right. Cultural stuff. Cultural stuff. Cultural stuff. Okay. Um, I've taken a heap of notes in the book. Um, actually, let, let's go through. Let's like don't bury the lead. The the really interesting thing I thought, and we'll go over some of the smaller things in a second. Is um, there's a quote here. Um, quote: Greeks of more limited means could occasionally hire specialized professional cooks known as magerosi, possibly, um, at the market to prepare special meals that included the religious sacrifice of an animal. These professionals were male, uh, as respectable women seldom ventured into the public sphere. Um, that I found really interesting. I'm always kind of intrigued about like ways in which um, human uh, cultures can set up jobs that we think of being as entirely different in our culture but they're the one in a different culture and i kind of like the idea of like the priest cook and um, like you go off to priestly school and you learn about like god and stuff but you also learn how to cook really well to be able to like serve the gods you know and um, mm. which is so different from like our priests because like our priests leaving aside spirituality for a second like kind of function as like community counselors really yeah where they go around and like you know deal with grieving families and all that sort of thing um and then like perform a sort of like um i guess bureaucratic role in terms of like paperwork for births and that sort of thing um but like notion of a priest here being like oh it's like this auspicious day we i must come over to your house and make you make a meal for the gods like that's so wild to me and i thought that's really fun that's a really fun bit of like cultural flavor that we don't we don't have that's neat, yeah. Yeah. Um, so back to the more some of the more smaller things. A real quick rundown of like uh, food and agriculture, like what sort of was available to the Greeks. Um, 
Barley and pulses were common staples. Um, emmer and bread wheat were like, they're kind of like, yeah, staple grains. Grapes, obviously. Um, for, uh, oh yeah, grapes and then figs, apples, pears, peaches and plums. Olive oil, obviously, though other cooking fats were used. Um, cheese, important, but there's very, apparently, quote, there is little discussion of milk and yogurt, but yogurt would have been another way to preserve milk. That seems to place yogurt at the, like, peripheral, uh, periphery of Greek culture, which is nuts, given that, like, if you ask anyone about Greeks and yogurts, they'd be like, there's a whole, like, Greek yogurt TM. Um, It seems so tied to Greece, but... There was a whole thing about that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, like, they, um, in this book, they're like, yeah, milk and yogurt, not really a whole thing, which I found counterintuitive but interesting um sheep and goats valued for their uh milk and meat cattle were more valuable um it only really used in terms of like sacrifices uh, or their meat was only That's used in really terms interesting of... is it is it really interesting it's because we like we have we have beef so much in the modern west we too much um, beef to be fair Oh, wait a minute. And that, that's that's even setting aside, like, my stance that one shouldn't eat meat. Like, if you are eating meat, maybe not at the quantities that we currently do. And that they're useful as work animals. That's, that's yeah. I don't know. That's just, that's just like, oh, that's cool. I think that makes that sense. Cool it, to me. it makes sense to me, though, because, like, it's like if you kill the cow, you lose a whole bunch of assets there. Like, you use the, mm. lose the ability to, like, I don't know. What do cows do in terms of being a work animal? Do they push uh, plows? The cows push. Yeah. There you go. So you pull. lose pull, pull. Sorry, yeah. You lose your plow pusher, a uh, puller. <laughs> um, in sacrificing it, you know. Mm. Um, and I, maybe maybe it's a thing that that's why this is speculation time with Edgar, but maybe that's why um, beef was the sacrificial thing in that, like, it is a sacrifice to give up mm. that asset. In a way that, like, if you sacrifice like a small chicken to the gods, it'd be kind of seen. Uh, that would, if I was a god, I would feel a bit insulted to be like, "Why are you sacrificing these dime a dozen animals for me?" You Is give- that all? You what? Is that all you're giving me? Exactly, exactly. So maybe that's why the cow uh, would would be put in that in that um, place, you know. And then also things like you know ongoing sources of milk. Um, although they say sheep and goats were valued for their milk. Um, so yeah, and cattle just work animals, so maybe cow milk wasn't a thing. And the mm. book did get us to make goat's cheese cheese or goat's milk cheese, so you know. Um, pigs were a common source of meat, so if you're poor, you're probably eating pig if you're going to eat meat, uh, meat of the land. Uh, deer, wild boar, and birds were also appreciated. Um, tuna was really prestigious. This book mentioned tuna over and over again. I didn't realize that there were even tuna fish in the Mediterranean at any time. Apparently they were. And they love themselves some tuna, apparently. Um, garum, this, which is a fermented fish sauce, was also popular. In terms of vegetables, you're looking at leaf, uh, lettuces, cabbages, onions, asparagus roots, uh, pulses, and lupines. I don't know what that is, but that's a thing. Oh, no, really. Um, uh, mushrooms. Mushrooms, um, except for like truffles. Uh, and a couple of special varieties were never really uh, foraged or and or eaten. It's a bit unclear. 
Um, if you're really poor, you're doing that, but anyone of any sort of means is not going around foraging, foraging mushrooms, which I guess makes sense because unless you know what Wise you're doing, weeks. yeah, you're going to end up uh, tripping balls or dying or both. And Also, mushrooms are gross. Do you not like mushrooms? No. Stop it. Bill, do you not? So I need to put the book down. Let's interrogate this a little bit. <laughs> Have do you think you've sampled a wide variety of mushrooms? I don't know. Hmm. Because I can see someone thinking that like our regular like button mushrooms are pretty gross, but like there's plenty of mushrooms that are like way less mushroomy than than the normal mushrooms. And like the ones I think of are um, the ones they had in Korea. I cannot for the life of you tell you what they're called, but they look like, um, they look like a standard mushroom, but imagine you shrank the head really far down, right? And then made the stalk extremely long and thin, um, like mushroom grass sort of thing with little mushroom heads on it. I couldn't tell you what they're called, but those things taste nothing like the sort of like snaily mushrooms that we have. Um, so I think the, the fungi kingdom comes in such a wide variety that even the most ardent mushroom hater, I think, can find something that's okay in there. So I wouldn't write off all mushrooms, Bill. Okay. There's a mushroom out there waiting for you. You just, you, your heart just has to be open. Okay. Am I looking at? No, this is an actual kind of grass, not a kind of mushroom. Oh, I'll just, Korean mushroom. Let's have a look. Because what you described to me sounded a lot like what psilocybin mushrooms look like. Well, I'm assuming they're not just eaten as an everyday food in Korea. <laughs> no, so, uh, hold on. Enoki, enoki mushroom. How do I spell that? E-N-O-K-I. Actually, now that I think about it, maybe I didn't describe that the best because they actually... No, no, I, 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 I see I see what your, I see your description in this in this picture now, yeah. I get you. So these boils, the enoki mushrooms, totally don't feel like mushrooms. And in fact, hold on, there's another image here that I must show you. Links in the show notes to these pictures, folks. Um, if I can get a name for mushroom number four here. Yeah, type this in. Mm-hmm. Uh, S-A-E. Mm-hmm. S-O-N-G-I. Oh, they're weird looking. What are you looking at? Because this this page is not entirely clear as to what their numbering system is. What are they? What do they look like? They look kind of like vases or jars or something. Yeah, that's them. So their bottom, they're they're like the, the bulbous vase part. Nothing like a mushroom. Um, the top bit tastes like your normal mushroom, but the bottom bit tastes, uh, I guess, meatier. Um, so they're, yeah, like I said, Bill, there's a mushroom waiting out there for you. Um, not all mushrooms okay. are button mushrooms. <laughs> Um, I mean, I also just kind of don't trust them that they, they grow in the dark. I find it very suspicious. What do you eat rhubarb? Rhubarb grows above ground. Yeah, but don't doesn't rhubarb grow? Don't we grow it in intentionally dark rooms to make it grow like mental? Not when I grew rhubarb at home. Oh, so you so you would eat home rhubarb? Well, would you eat store bought rhubarb then? That's grown in a dark room. Well, I've, I I didn't know about that before, and <laughs> rhubarb can that's like rhubarb which grows outdoors in the light being made into a a dark thing but 
mushrooms which like naturally grow but, in the dark. I find it. What are they up to? Sorry, hold it's on. Just, do I not know about mushrooms? But like, do all mushrooms grow in the dark? Question no, but they don't have to. But they 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 can and they can thrive in in in, in darkness. Oh. Okay. Um. Okay. Okay. Anyway, back back to it. Mushrooms. If you're poor in ancient Greece, you're foraging for mushrooms because probably there are risks associated with that that the upper um, classes don't want to deal with. Um, herbs. Um, Sylphium. Don't know what that is. Sumac and dates uh, were common but imported things. Um, cinnamon. Oh, Sylphium is is lost. It's the, it's extinct, or it's thought to be extinct, or they, they don't actually know what it is. But I saw something recently that it might have been um, rediscovered. No. So what is it? Uh, let me check here. Yeah, silphium uh, is an unidentified plant that was used in classical antiquity as a seasoning, perfume, aphrodisiac, and medicine. Of course, it was used in aphrodisiac. <coughs> and a contraceptive. Sure. Just everything. The everything plant. Uh, yeah, so Ferula Jude- Judeana might be might be Silphium. Um, it matches both the appearance of the Silphium in descriptions and the spice-like gum resin. Hmm, interesting. Um, oh, no, hold on, although that's... Without a surviving sample, no genetic analysis can be made. Uh, so Ferula Judeana does exist, but they, they, don't, they can't, don't have what definitely was considered silphium to, to test it, to be sure. Mm, mm. Looks like what they're saying. Um, cinnamon, uh, cinnamon, sugar, and other spices were also imported, although much like in Mesopotamia, didn't really use them for food. Um, they were rare, and so they were kind of more medicinal sort of things, which again, mm. it blows my mind that like sugar, medicinal, hilarious. Um if you're going to sweeten things in ancient Greece, it's going to be honey and dried fruits. That's how you sweeten them, as is evidenced by the meal we just prepared. Um, what else did I think was of note here? Oh, yeah, yeah. prehistoric Greeks um, would have you would have had, like, acorns would have been their kind of, like, staple food, which I think is kind of cool. Um, mm. They'd either eat them, you know, in nut form or grind them up to make flour and things like that. Um, so apparently the the... Uh, in and around Greece, acorn or acorns are a big deal. Did not know that. Um, oh, and then even into like classical Greek times, the acorn still held up as a kind of means of uh, staving off famine. You know, um, so if famine hit, crops failed. You could always fall back on abundant acorns, which is mad because we do, we don't really. Have you ever eaten an acorn? I don't think that's the thing we actually eat here at all. Like I see them, but I don't eat them. I don't think so. No. Um, lions were hunted. Baller. The Greeks hunted lions. Isn't that class? In Greece. For food? Uh, they just say here, wild games such as deer, boars, hares, asses, bears, and even lions were hunted. That's all they say about it. Um, for, but for food or not, just the idea of a lion in Europe is kind of cool. Mm. And we've completely lost that. But apparently, apparently they like went... Uh, I think uh, I was looking into it last night. Apparently, like Hungary would be about the most northerly place that you're liable to find a lion back in the day. Hungary, Bill, with lions. That's very cool. No, it's like 
Absolutely nuts. Um, so that's some of the stuff on uh, the sort of ingredients available to ancient Greeks. Any any questions, any thoughts? You mentioned, obviously, the grapes thing. Mm. And I was kind of curious about that. And where does it say here? Uh, olives and grapes were the signatures of the Greek diet. They originated in the Near East. But once they reached the Greek Aegean, Greeks spread olives and grapes through the Mediterranean, where they thrived in the favorable climate. Um Olives were part of the Minoan diet by 2000 BCE. Um, grapes, domesticated grapes have been confirmed to 2500 BCE, so even further. And maybe even back as far as the 5th millennium BCE, mm-hmm. which is so long ago. It's a long time. I love that as a little factoid, though, that like, you know, you associate, you know, grapes and olives with um, with the Greeks. I love the notion that you can turn around and say like, but it's they're not like natively Greek uh, in the same way that like you associate tomatoes with Italians, but tomato is not native to Italy. Um, yeah. I kind of like this whole like, <laughs> does any, is there any culture out there that's just like, you know, their staple food or their like, um, I guess like branding fr- fr- uh, food um, on the world stage is actually, you know, a food that is 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 native to the region. It's got to be somewhere, I suppose. But uh, potatoes are Peruvian. Th- that's that's another one. I know th- that's uh, what an example I'm looking for. But potatoes in Ireland, like everyone associates Ireland with potatoes. Potatoes mm. not Irish. Um, there's so much of that. It's it's just mental. But yeah, they they had olives and grapes a long, long time ago. Um, now, uh, social class stuff, if I may, Bill. Absolutely. So according to this book, all meals were structured into two parts. Um, forgive my Greek here, folks. A cetose part and an opsone part or opsone part. Um, the cetose part is like your like main calorie part. Like this is usually your staple grains. Um, and then the opsone part is like, they call it relishes throughout this book, but it's like side dishes. So that can be like uh, meats, fish, vegetables, fruits pulses some sort of dairy um and the book makes a point of calling out that this is very similar to ancient uh and possibly even still modern chinese menus where it's basically like you have the rice and the rice is like your main thing that you're getting your calories from and then everything else is like seasoning for the rice so you'd have a little bit of fish on it to make the rice taste better but really the rice is the the main thing uh, and apparently some writers in ancient Greek, if someone uh, ate too much upsone, so that is the stuff, the non-grain stuff, um, if they ate too much upsone, they were considered gluttonous because they didn't eat enough cetone. So it's almost mm. like, you know, you bougie git with your many cuts of meat, you should be really focusing on the on the like bread or the, yeah, that sort of thing. Um which I think is is kind of cool, and once again goes to point out that what you know we may think of ourselves being extremely different in terms of different cultures in the world, but humans are basically just humans, and I would imagine the idea of having you know the equivalent of rice plus some sort of flavoring to be a pretty a pretty close to human human universal thing, you know, um, which I thought was really cool. Um, wine. Uh, was eaten after was as I uh, alluded to earlier. Wine was only drank after eating occurred, and I think this is related to formal uh, meals. So, like posh people and rich people, they'd like recline to uh, a symposium, 
which is a drinking party. And they there they would like, you know. That's what symposium means. Well, they said, quote, wine appeared in the symposium, brackets, drinking party, after the main <laughs> eating was complete. I don't know. I gotta look up. That's really funny. Yeah, I don't know if that's actually what it means. But while you're looking it up, um, and then in these drinking parties, they seemed, I get the impression they're more of a, a raucous affair than like posh English aristocracy brandies in the drawing room sort of thing. Because they say here, you know, it could be complete with musicians, courtesans, party games, uh, you know, debauched behavior, all that sort of thing. So I think it was like a, a bit of a rave after a meal for the posh folk of, of Greece, which I thought is kind of cool. Um, now, if informal meals, this is like a formal setting, but informal meals, wine would be acceptable to drink at those informal meals, um, which I think is weird that they'd have this like cut off like why in a formal meal would just be like i'm not drinking wine i guess maybe it's like you're there for the food enjoy the food don't let wine spoil it um that could be it like or if the the secondary part the symposium was where the wine was drunk and it was associated with uh with like the the going wild that maybe wasn't a part of the informal meal, so you would just have a glass of wine, or I suppose a yeah. cup or goblet of wine, or whatever, um, and there wouldn't be the context of having the wine to get wasted and party. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. That makes sense, that makes sense. Um, much like with Mesopotamia from the last time, um, uh, public banqueting and feasting was segregated by gender. Shock horror. Um, men reclined while boys and other men of lesser status uh, in attendance sat and ate those foods that principal males chose to give them. Uh, and these these like dependents, these boys or uh, dependent males were, call, were called parasitos, which I'm pretty sure <laughs> is where we get the word parasite from. Um, so yeah, again, like ancient Mesopotamia, there seems to be like, yeah, different different social classes literally physically appear in meals differently to others like in terms of sitting and reclining and again i find that just incredibly fascinating um that like posture is it seems to be this thing that like delineates social class or to to visually delineate social class which i think is nuts um do you find anything on 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 um symposium while i'm at while i'm taking gulp of air (laughs) Um, yeah, well, borrowed from Symposium, from Ancient Greek, Symposion, drinking party, from Sumpino, drink together. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah. Um, um, go on. Also, eating while reclining seems kind of, I don't know, doesn't seem comfortable. We said that last time as well, yeah. And Didn't I, we? Yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah. After the show last time, I actually went and tested it, so I like reclined chaise lounge style on my sofa. And tried to eat some fruit and it just it wasn't happening. Like I'm like, this is awful. This is this is terrible. Um and then I tried like lying down, like on my back with my head raised up, and I'm like, nope, this is uncomfortable. So but like I mean, it is kind of like us to to, you know, the posh thing is the uncomfortable thing, you know? Like sweatpants are really comfortable, but if you go to a formal dinner, you have to wear like an uncomfortable suit and tie, you know? Um, if you're wearing an uncomfortable suit, you've got a suit that doesn't fit. 
Interesting. I, I, I don't want to get into debate with this because you are a suit guy. You do like your suits. <laughs> I would... No, no, I'm not going to say it. Okay. More suit talk. Right. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Next point. Um, food was served... This is, again, restrict, respect the formal dinners. Um, food was served on these small tables, which you have two to three people eating at it at most. And I think the idea is that the tables could literally be picked up, brought away, and replaced with other small tables at, like, different points in the meal, which it, it seems cumbersome but like there we are um oh yeah and then uh professional cooks so again nobility or posh people would use professional cooks they could be either free men or slaves Uh, and apparently celebrity status for cooks was a thing that could be obtained rarely so you'd have some ancient greek analogued gordon ramsay for example but i think they were still kind of seen very much as like servants but like a famous servant you know um, and unless they were wealthy, women prepared uh, food in the homes and they didn't have a slave. So if you were like a middle class or a person, I get the impression that you'd employ a slave to prepare food. If you're not, the lady of the house would, would do it. And that's just, you know, kind of standard patriarchal sort of thing going on there. Employ or not employ, <laughs> depending on how you want to use the verb. Oh, did I say employ a slave? Well, no, it does. It, there is a literal sense in which that is the case. You know, you're, you're getting them to do the job. You know, like you employ a tool or, or a concept or something. But also, there's the other sense. <laughs> I, as a brief aside, um, do you, you know, in a way, like Greece, ancient Greece had slaves? Mm hmm. What, do you know anything about their attitude towards slavery? Like, obviously, this this whole thing needs to be prefaced with like slavery is bad, um, but like you know, like where on the spectrum? Like, did, did where, do you know anything about whether or not their slaves were more indentured servants rather than like chattel slavery, or like how did they? Do you know how they thought about slavery? I do not. Yeah, I wonder. I do not know. I wonder. Um, I think in in Sparta. Like it was, it was more of a chattel sort of situation. I think hmm. Um, hmm. the what were they called? Were they the helots, or was the helots the 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 free underclass? Helots were were bonded, were more like serfs. Yes, they were they were they were connected to to specific land. Hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, um, because yeah, I think you know. Oh, again, slavery is bad. Obviously, it's good, I would say. But, like, within that, um, there is just... I think there's there's been... A, it, over the course of human history, there's been a diverse range of opinions on how one does slavery. Um, and I find them morbidly fascinating. Um, there's an episode of the uh, Dan Carlin's podcast that I can't remember the name of. Oh... God, and it basically, is, it's a, it's like a three, four hour show about the history of slavery. And it's it, I find it really interesting. Really interesting. Uh, if I can find it, I'll leave it in the show notes. Um, now. Do, oh, yeah. Oh, God, we're an hour in. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm going to I'm gonna finish up real quick. Um, was there anything? I get, okay. Yeah, I guess um, apparently one meal a day would be considered standard. And that meal would be enjoyed in the evening. It was called a dape non. Um, although sometimes you could have like a light midday brunch called the Ariston, um, which was basically just like the leftovers from the next, the, the previous, uh, the previous day's date non. So you'd eat dinner again, 
just like leftovers at breakfast, basically. But one meal a day was considered standard. <clears throat> and I think that's good because I think the notion of having three square meals a, meals a day is awful. And people really shouldn't have three meals a day. I think that's nuts. Um, really? Yeah. I mean, like, tr- it depends on how you define meal here, but like, uh, like three b- big servings of food a day, I think is, I think is way too much. Like I, I'm, I'm with the Greeks here. I think it, like one big serving and then graze throughout the day. Um, and like, that's what, that's what I do. Like I'll, I'll have my only big meal of the day would be dinner. And then throughout the day, I'd have like a banana for breakfast, cup of coffee. And then if I get a bit peckish, I'll have like a handful of nuts and then like wait a little bit more if I get peckish again, I might have like a couple of spoonfuls of kimchi and I'm just like constantly putting tiny bits of food into my body, but I'm not like blasting it three times a day with like a big full on meal. Um, and, and particularly given our propensity to a either overeat meat meats, so your three square meals of meals a day might actually contain three instances of meat, which I think is, from a health standpoint, probably not great. And yeah. also our propensity to eat a lot of sugar. Um, I'm looking at you Americans here. I, I get the impression that like the American breakfast is basically like one step removed from like cakes, where it's like <laughs> just like sugar, sugar-coated um, like cereal with like yeah, golden syrup coated waffles and like that don't that's too much food and it's just not good so i'm i'm with the greeks here uh, i take it chicken and waffles is brilliant though chicken. i mean i wouldn't have it for a regular breakfast but it is brilliant like yeah i sorry I, I, every so often i break my rules and i'll have like a big breakfast but like on the regular i think three square meals, meals a day is is, is a bad is a bad idea well what what do you do bill what do you eat how do you eat chaotically chaotically is this like a controlled chaotically or like is this like a no it's a chaotic chaotic <laughs> okay so just you eat whenever the hell whatever the hell i mean i i i try and stay kind of somewhat regular but um i often fail to um i like to i like to prep my breakfast the night before where possible what's your breakfast um, so the two things I would tend to make, the one, and the one that I would tend to prep the night before, is I'd make some variety of overnight oats. Mm, okay. So good oats and yogurt and fruit. Baller. That's a great breakfast. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I like that. Uh, should... The other thing I would tend to make is eggs bill. Eggs bill. Eggs bill. <laughs> Tell me about eggs bill. Um, oh. I would genuinely be interested in hearing. Uh, uh, a vegetarian way to, to achieve this, but, um, so you get chorizo, right? Sorry, but can I, can, before you start explaining this, just, just so, you know, I'm not made of food up here. Eggs bill is clearly like your own hilarious term here. This isn't like eggs Benedict. There isn't like, no, t- no, it, I, it, I have, I have coined the, the term. Okay. Eggs bill. <laughs> okay. Now, so- not all of the concepts contained herein are, are my, my idea. Um, the kind of core thing it certainly isn't, but the the putting it all together is what makes it. Yeah, you, you've curated, you've built upon, you've come, you've, you're standing upon the shoulders of giants here. But you've just brought together stuff we already That's do. It. That's it. Tell That's me it. about eggs, Bill. <laughs> so eggs, Bill, you get chorizo, right? Sure. And you chop up the chorizo and you fry it uh, to make it nice and you don't you don't want it like obviously burnt, but it's like a little bit crispy. And when you do that, it weeps oil. It does. So the oil comes out of the chorizo. Okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you take that oil 
and using that oil and butter, you scramble some eggs really slowly. Okay. So that's the that's the oil base for the scrambled eggs, and you don't use any <coughs> you don't use any milk or seasoning. Just straighten the oil and butter very very slowly, so it kind of emulsifies, doesn't get hard. Um, and as you're doing that, you add the chorizo back into the egg, so it kind of emulsifies around the chorizo. Mm. Um, then in the pan where you fried the chorizo, you you fry some halloumi, <laughs> and then you put this all together in a wrap, in like a tortilla, and you have it with hot sauce. That is, that is, I, yeah, that is a thing. How's your cholesterol doing? Great. <laughs> Great. No, man, it is. My cholesterol's fine. fine. I, I actually recently got bloods done and your man was like, your cholesterol is literally perfect. And I was like, ha, he was like 3.5 on the nose. It's exactly what it's meant to be. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. I actually feel a little bit of shame because like, I would consider my diet to be, um, like really good, like barring my slight tendency to eat sweets every now and then, I pretty much eat um, like incredibly healthy food. Um, like I tend not to fry many things. Most of the stuff I eat uh, that's hot is steamed. Um, it's all plant-based. Um, very few processed foods are in my diet. So I was kind of a bit ashamed. I was like, well, can I, can I not get like a... 3.0 of cholesterol like like, like I, I want to be better than perfect here doctor um that breakfast sounds delicious and also awful at the same time it's not awful as awful as you might expect it's it's uh, like i mean you wouldn't want to be having it every day but no. it's you know it's nice for like a, a sunday or something halloumi is boss though halloumi is, boss. Mm, halloumi absolutely, is great. absolutely lovely love halloumi um Okay, hold on. Go back to this for a second. Let me think what else. Skipping over things. Just some final things. Oh, I'll end up this section on a funny quote, right? Okay, and this is concerning the different wine drinking habits of the Greeks versus the Macedonians. So, because apparently it was customary in Greece at the time to... Uh, watered down wine so you'd rarely ever drink wine neat um so most of the red wine would actually appear more pinky like a rosé but the macedonians apparently on the other hand they did not do this they drank their wine neat um and so here's the quote on this quote one theory for this difference is that grapes ripened poorly in the mountainous macedonian vineyards unripe grapes would have had less natural sugar that would be available for fermentation and would yield less uh, wines with lower alcohol levels than their Athenian counterparts, allowing the Macedonians to drink more without getting drunk. Period. On the other hand, the Macedonians did have a reputation for drunkenness, which I find really funny. <laughs> Just like, so yeah, I mean, like, I guess the lower alcohol content means that they can consume, they didn't need to water down as much because they were blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, Macedonians, though, they were kind of always drunk all the time, which I found hilarious. That puts a new spin on that um, Colin Farrell, uh, Alexander the Great movie. Why? Because, and I have always thought this was very interesting. The, the, the way that they cast it there is they cast Irish actors as Macedonians and, or, you know, people with Irish, using Irish accents as Macedonians and people with British accents as the, the rest of the Greeks or the Greek Greeks or whatever. Um, I always thought that was quite interesting from a point of view that they're, 
closely connected in many ways cultures, but they're not the same. And that, you know, the Macedonians have a historically uh, lower status in the context of, of the Greek one. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also just a, a drunken element to it as well, matching up offensive national stereotypes. But I guess, I think a lot of these, now obviously like they're stereotypes, but like as with most stereotypes, I think there's sometimes an element of truth to it. Like, I don't think it's controversial to say that like levels of drinking in this country are like fairly high relative to our neighbours. I do. Oh, do you? I thought maybe yeah, a bit- I, 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 I don't think it's it's notably notably higher than than the UK. Interesting. Maybe I just have wrong data there. But what I was going to say based on that, which renders what I'm going to say now relevant, but I'm going to say it anyways, is um, that like I think. Um, a lot of the drunken stereotypes, I think, fall out of, um, like, oppression, you know? Like, an oppressed people will resort to, um, like, drinking to, like, just mm. not to forget the horrible situation they're in. And I think we kind of do see this, if the Macedonian example is correct, and, you know, Macedonia was kind of like the Ireland to British Greeks... I could definitely see a bunch of normal Macedonian people just who were being subjugated just being like, let's just drink to forget. Same thing with Irish people, at least back in the day. You can have the same thing with like uh, Native American cultures as well. I know there's like problems with like um, alcoholism and and things like that. And I, I think a lot of that just, you know, it's either it's either you make the case that like Irish people are say like naturally drunk. We have a drunk gene. Or you can be like, maybe the context we were put in led to like mm. terrible mental health and this manifests itself in in you know bad behavior like this so i i, I don't know I, I don't i actually don't know what point i'm trying to make here anymore i guess i was trying to say like maybe us and the macedonians are aligned not in our drunkenness that or that's not the key thing here it's the yeah. fact that we were oppressed and it manifests itself in a similar sort of way perhaps yeah i don't know enough about the 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 relative um relationship between them but that would be worth looking into. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. God, this bread is great, Bill. I love it. Mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying it. Okay, that is all I had to say about Greece. Have you got any following, any um, follow-up points? Um, no, I think I, I interjected all of the all of the stuff I had to say. Cool, cool. All right, you got some world building, correct? I have some world building. All right, I didn't think we were going to do world building today because I thought we were just going to do a food show. But then it occurred to me that last time we did a food show, we also did world building. So, Bill, you're on the ball. I am not. Um, let us know, as always, what you got. Give us a summary and then launch into it. I have uh, a tale recounted by an old aviator. And I think when we get to the end, I think we will understand why. Hmm. Laugh all you want, youngsters, but this eye of mine is the last remaining eye in this company who saw the basking maw and lived to tell the tale. They try and tell you it's only a story, something the elder hands use to scare the fresh blood, but those scriveners and scribblers in the towers haven't seen not a hundredth of what us old airmen have seen, and I've seen enough to tell you I've not seen a hundredth of the mysteries that are abroad in these skies. 
I was no older than most of you. I say I was a good deal younger than many, for in those days they took us in young. This was before the Tamar Company ever flew a vessel. I was taken as a junior hand on a freight runner out of Jakav. We used to ply all along the Usin Belt and beyond into the wilds, bringing goods to the Abeski and any other folk that would trade with us, places the Arthani or the caravans couldn't reach. Well, I'd not been on the crew half a year when we got a contract to fly way out west, where few Abeski ever traded, but this one town was hacking out a living in the shadow of a smoking mountain. Oh yes, those are real too. Even the scribblers in their offices won't tell you otherwise. They were convinced they'd find gold, picking away at the ground like some godless anchesi beneath the smoking brute of a mountain. It smoked and spewed all year long, a great dirty crag rearing into the air, not like those slumbering hills in Transalian that spit once in a lifetime. We'd flown far beyond the routes any of you have ever taken, and twice as far again, before we found this tired little camp. We spent barely a day there before turning and coming back again. Our navigator, senseless drunk on what must have been all the brandy those poor miners had stored away, led us straight into the smoke plume from the burning mountain, and we got turned every way, blind to all compasses and charts. One and all the crew coughed and spluttered and wretched the sick atmosphere, until the lookout recovered enough to sound the alarm. Another vessel, her signals bright and guiding us from the smoke. We gathered ourselves in enough to fly towards them to safety, and never was a greater mistake made in all the history of flight. It's just as you've heard it described, if not worse. For no uncle scaring his nephews or master scolding his charges could truly tell the horrific sight of the basking maw. A hull as black as night, somehow sucking your eye to it. Though it was full noon, the sky all around was darker for its presence. Bristling with ragged and fierce batteries, gaping holes promising destruction no lesser than the mouth of that smoking mountain. Its devint left an oily wake in the sky hanging clear behind it as though untouched by current or cloud. We turned and fled as fast as any vessel I've crewed, and I've crewed them all. The basking maw hung behind us all the way, never straining, though we pushed our vessel for all it was worth, jettisoning all the cargo, packing in our few batteries, every prayer every aviator could offer, and yet the basking maw hung astern never falling a hand's breadth further behind, no matter what speed we set. Four days and four nights we raced ahead of the evil craft. Not a hand among us slept a minute in all that time, and that, at last, was what brought our downfall. The captain ordered us to ride the edge of a storm, hoping we could lose our pursuers, but the exhausted crew could not match the violence of the winds, and we lost control, tossed asunder, pulled into the heart of the storm and finally cast into the valley below. Those of us who survived huddled in the cabins in the hold, gripping our pikes and our axes, lest Grey Bowerin and his crew descend to snatch us away, the storm raging without all the while. And Grey Bowerin never came. Whether the basking maw was finally put away by the storm, or the deaths of half our crew satisfied his thirst for violence, who can ever tell? 
When the storm blew over in another half a day, the basking maw was no longer in our wake. After burning the captain and the hands, and burying the navigator and damning him as a fool, we picked ourselves up and began the long flight back to Shikav. Most of the crew never signed on again and didn't fly another day in their lives. The vessel was scrapped the following year, and as for myself, I've never ventured further west than the Lenla since. And yet the East, the East has its own share of horrors and wonders. I could tell you about the time I lived among the Ursalk of Hoytan for a season. But you'll have to buy me another drink. Okay, change of pace. Um, you said at the start, you're like, hopefully by the end, it'll become like obvious or something yep. that effect. Um, I can't say that it's obvious. I have a couple of um, theories. Okay. Uh, no, As in why I, why I wrote this particular thing. Why you wrote theories this. Theories on that. Yeah, why you wrote this particular thing and also kind yeah. of who is talking. Um, but let's stick to the usual format. Tell me stuff first and then I'll ask some questions. It's October and I love Halloween, so I wanted to write something slightly spooky. <laughs> That's all. Oh my god. Okay. Okay. Well, those wouldn't have been my speculations. Okay. My speculations were <laughs> you wanted to write, because we were talking about Greek food, I thought much like the last time where you made a food inspired uh, bit of whirling, or you did a food inspired bit of whirling, I thought you were going for like a like a sort this could be kind of like a fragment of like homer's iliad sailors out there encountering weird wild monsters i thought you were going for an idiotic mythos of of this flying culture um <laughs> but that wasn't it at all nope. uh, i also thought maybe you were going for a sort of like you know these are kind of like pirates would tell stories of like you know kraken and things like that and these people are basically like sky pirates. So I was like, oh, maybe you're just telling a story of like pirate lore, um, except applied to disguise. Um, those were my two things about well, why you were... that second one is, is pretty much it, yeah. Yes, but I would never in a month of Sundays have guessed that like it's October, you like Halloween, you wanted to write something spooky. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the, the thing at the very end though, I'm, oh god, do I stick to the format or no? We'll skip around. Let's go full chaos. Okay, skip around. Much like your eating patterns, just chaotic all the time. Um, <laughs> at the end, you go, and yet the East, the East had its own shares of horrors and wonders. I could tell you about the time I lived among the Ursalk of Hoi Tan for a season, but I'll have to, bu- you'll have to buy me another drink. Is this the person from the Ursalk story? No. No, okay, right. So it's a okay. I was thinking maybe we've met this person before. So this person is a random person in a in a bar. Yeah, it's 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 an old aviator telling a spooky story. Telling a spooky story, which which I'm assuming, given your your um your penchant for uh, unreliable narrators, may or may not be true. It may or indeed may not be true. Yeah, yeah. So it's just some sort of yeah. He could he could be a drunken old crackpot. Yeah. Uh, who's who's lost his mind, or this could be an actual event that occurred. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um. The the basking maw, right? This this like ghost ship, this big black 
ominous ship in the skies. Um, Ma, what are the meaning of these words here? Like basking, I get like, it's like a basking shark sort of thing. What's a maw? Maw is, is like a mouth. Basking maw. Okay. Okay. All right, cool. That's a cool name. That's, that's a that's a really cool name actually. Cheers. I, I really like that. Um you have a bit in the middle about um quote, but this one town was hacking out a living in the shadows of a smoking mountain. Oh yes, those are real too. And I was like, what? These people don't know what volcanoes are. And then it occurred to me like that's actually that's you've done a really nice bit of like geofiction there. Like the Abeski, I the impression I get from that is that the mountain ranges that surround them are like old mountains, like the Appalachian Mountains or something like that, that aren't tectonically active. And if they don't wander very far from there, they may not ever see tectonically active mountains. So they could be a sort of mythos type thing. Yeah. I've never seen a volcano. I mean, I remember I've been in one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Literally in one. Um, but yeah, that that's really cool. Like that's 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 a real fun bit of like, it's a way of telling us a little bit about the ge- geography of the world without telling us about the geography of the world. And I think that's really cool. I really enjoyed that. Um, and I like that they spit once in a lifetime. So it's like, it th- that's enough. Or the mountains or the Trans-Olean region, they become vo- vo- volcanically active once in a lifetime. That's enough that it that the volcanism doesn't descend entirely into mythos. Like, there are enough people who have witnessed such a thing to be like, no, this is fact. But then mm. also enough people who are kind of like, yeah, grandpa's been drinking again. He keeps thinking the mountains spit fire um, because they just haven't seen it in their lifetime. And I think that that's just a really fun bit of, uh, yeah, a way of conveying geofiction in a subtle way. I think that's cool. Cheers. Very, very cool. Um, the Grey Bowron. Who is the Grey Bowron? Like, I'm assuming the captain of the Basking Maw. Yes, and that, that would be understood by, by the audience who, who would have grown up with tales of the Basking Maw and they would have heard stories before. So they they, oh, okay. they all know who Grey Bowron is. So that's like, um, what's the famous pirate? Blackbeard? Sure, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Edward Teach. Ed, is that his real name? Blackbeard's real name was Edward Teach, yeah. Blackbeard is slightly cooler than Edward Teach. I think he did a good job branding there. Um, the so the Grey Bowron. Is there anything else that you could say about this outside? Because from the from the piece, we get the sense of like the Grey Bowron mans a foreboding ship that goes around and chases people uh, when they get lost and go wander into un, uh, uncertain territories. Is there anything else of the mythos around that that's not contained in the story? Um. This was sort of, um, it, this wasn't entirely deliberate, but I think there is a thing to it that uh, it's it's a cautionary tale about, uh, you know, not, not, not being drunk on duty because the navigator got drunk and flew them into a, a volcano plume and they ended up being chased by a ghost ship and, and half of them died. So it's, it's like a there's, a, there's an element of cautionary tale to it or the kind of a moral story to it. Hmm. Yeah, I would have. God, I think as with as a lot of these scary things, I always find that the cautionary tale is don't ever try to explore. <laughs> <laughs> like, never leave the comfort of what you know. Like, there's a ton of that in um, Irish folklore where it's like um, things like forests are considered bad and evil places. Um, and I think 
like obviously they make for cool stories but i think there was a utility in that in that it's like maybe don't go into the big dark forest where you can get turned around easily and spat out into some unfamiliar place yeah that you know so there's kind of like there's a a public service that these myths are kind of doing yeah. don't interfere with the neighbors yeah exactly it's usually like don't stay where you are don't ever try and be more is usually what these mythoses tend to uh ingrain which is which is i find a bit mad and your own feels the same way it's like if you're an ambitious um sky captain and you know you get notions that you're like well maybe if i just fly beyond where we usually fly there might be like a whole fresh set of people that i could perhaps exploit and then this mythos, you're reminded of this mythos and you go, mm, but the Grey Baron will be watching that. I don't want to do that, so I'll stick with what I know. Um, no. It's cool, though. Thank you. It's cool. I like it. Um, so so the ship um, was chased by the uh, basking maw um, and then they tried to get away from it, but that in, it led them into crashing and they landed in some valley, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you say then after that, it goes, after burning the captain and the hands uh, and burying the navigator and damning him as a fool, we picked ourselves up and began the long fight back to Zhikhav. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm assuming that this is the bury, uh, um, burning the captain in a sort of like funeral pyre, yes. not in a sort of, yeah, it's not like we're angry at you for invoking or for setting the basking ball on us. Let us burn you. Um this is they are already dead. Oh yeah, that's very ambiguous. Whoops. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but it is that they're already dead. Yes, yeah. Like yeah, so, yeah, the, the yeah. captain died, and half the crew. The captain and the navigator died, and like ha- about half the crew. Now, so here's the thing, right? So this is interesting. There seems to be like a social divide here because you you explicitly say you they burned the captain in the hands, but buried the navigator. Mm-hmm. So it. It appears to me that there's different funeral rites based on class here. Is that the correct no. stance? No, it's no. an insult. It's an insult. So because the, navig- the navigator got got them into the trouble, it's, it was his fault. So instead of instead of burning him, so he could, as an airman, as an aviator, like die and go to the sky, they put him in the ground instead. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay, so hold on, hold on. So for ground people, right, who have no business in the air, are, are their funeral rites the, the like hands, The hands would be groundsfolk. Because being a groundsfolk is more of a class thing. Right, right. But the hand, but it, wait, but then why are they burning the hands? Why are they returning them to the sky? Because they're aviators. Right, right, right. So, so I'm talking about like people who are not aviators, yeah. people who don't go anywhere near a, a skyship ever. Would their funeral rites be more akin to ours? Like you bury them in the ground? Uh, it would probably depend on their their own individual religions or their own individual customs. Um, some of them may be buried. Some of them maybe some of them may do sky burials, something like that. I think that would that would be a, a fitting one. Hold on, can you, sorry, can you, sky burials, what are these again? It's, it's like a, it's practiced in Tibet, I think Tibet, it was used to yeah, practiced yeah. in parts of uh, Iran, um, where you're kind of exposed and you're, you're eaten by carrion birds, essentially. What is the, do you know anything about that practice? Because from, from, you know, my cultural standpoint, that seems like almost disrespectful to the dead. 
to let them be picked apart by animals. But I'm going to work on the assumption that in other cultures, they they have a different story around it. Do you know anything about that? Um, I, I don't know what the internal like story of it is now. Um, but mm. the, the practical reason behind it is like there's there's not much soil in, in rocky mountainous places to bury people. For sure. Um, um, and maybe it's just like it's part of like a cycle in nature thing you you know you return to nature I don't know give me a second I'm just going to um, quick hold on oh very good okay yeah so the sort of positive spin on this is that the deceased and according to Wikipedia and the relatives of the deceased are like doing a good for nature by providing food to sustain other living things yeah so there's like a full circle sort of thing here. That's interesting, yeah, because I guess you could make an argument that like if you were to bury someone, you put them in the ground and no one but like worms and microorganisms are going to benefit from that. Um, that's interesting. Give me give me another more second here. Um, there's also, yeah, some indication here that it's the idea of reuniting the deceased person with the sky or the sacred realm. Uh Oh, and then also, I think, again, according to Wikipedia, Tibetans believe that at this point, life, the point of being, you know, uh, put through a sky burial, uh, life has completely left the body and the body contains nothing more than simple flesh. So even if one could argue that it's disrespectful, the, the person is not there. You're not disrespecting the person. Yeah. You just have, it's just simple flesh. That's, that's, I'm always interested in the way people, like the stories around our practices, because uh, no no culture has a practice that it goes as that it you know it 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 frames as being bad. You know what I mean? There's always a uh, a spin, some sort of positive spin on the cultural practice, and that's fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I re- I really like that. Cool, cool, cool. Um, so uh, to rephrase my previous question, I guess would burning be uh, almost exclusive to aviators because of their tie with the sky? No, it wouldn't necessarily be exclusive. They, they they would... Aviators would typically be burned. They would usually be burned. Um, uh, you know, where possible. Um, and even, you know, someone who... who you know, a, an old retired aviator might want to be burned when he dies. Um, but there there is a variety of, of death practices and funerary practices and religious practices mm-hmm. in the Abeski. Um, but he, here specifically, they're they're burying the navigator as kind of an as as a, a final insult to him. Sure, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, that's cool. I like that. And then yeah, my final note was the uh, was the Urzelk of um, Hoytan comment, but we we already talked about that. Yeah. That is that is really fun, and it's I was about to say it's a pity we didn't lose at Halloween, but we usually record, record the first Sunday of each month, so we'd miss Halloween. So this is basically, this is our Halloween episode. This is functionally the ha- Halloween episode, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, I, I guess one final question I have is, it's going to go nowhere, but I'll put it out there. Um, do, do you, as like the author, have opinions on the, uh, the basking ball? Like, is it a supernatural thing or is it actually just another ship? Like, because it could just totally be a ship from this volcanic region that just monitors, it patrols its borders and like chases off other people. Um, and all the other stuff like black and foreboding can just be, you know, as, um, assigned to it, you know, true stories. It, 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 you as the author, is this is this ship a real thing or is it a spiritual thing? I didn't really think about whether it was real or not. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, just like, oh. you know, I was writing a, writing a fun story. Um, I will say that the the stories have have the stories of the black of the black basking maw have been around for a long time lifetimes like they they, they were old when this old aviator was young um sure so it could just be a story it could be some kind of uh inherited thing that you know it gets passed down through generations of wicked pirates Sure, sure. I think I, I've met 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 a talk, I suppose, for a second. God damn, the salt fish is right beside me, and I keep just needing to do stuff with my fingers. But it tastes so bad that I immediately regret it every time I go go for it. Wash wash it down I, I, with some oxycodone. Yeah, that that's exactly what I'm going to do. Wash it down with like neat vinegar. Oi. Oh, just it's not refreshing. <laughs> it's not. I like the acidity of like an Athenian stomach must be off the charts if they're drinking this all the time. This this can't be good for you to drink such acidic things all the time. Oi, and it's very very sweet as well. If you if you put the the one tablespoon of of honey per two fifty ml. Oh, not a fan. Um, I I don't know if you've met these people before, Bill, but there's a certain like trope of like older Irish person who like with every fiber of their being thinks that like fairies are real. Have you met these people before? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I possibly. I I I've I've a neighbor who who like literally swears by it, and it's. It's possibly the most uncomfortable conversation to be dragged into because, like, it's obviously nonsense. Much like, and this reminds me of this this, this guy, this drunken navy, or this aviator in the pub who swears by this, like, um, supernatural thing. Um, and it's just, yeah, I've been in these conversations where someone goes, like, I swear, like, I, one evening I was standing out the back garden and I saw it. I saw the fairy and it looked like X, Y, and Z. And you're like, Jesus, like... I give this person a made-up name, Bob. God, Bob, like, you gotta stop, like, I think maybe you might have had, like, one or two many glasses of wine um, is what actually occurred there. Um, it's just mad. I think that the, uh, these people exist, and I think they're they're more frequent than we, we like to give credit for. And also, which I find nuts, is that, like, leaning into old Irish mythology in terms of fairies and pukas and spirits and the whole shebang, um, like, that's kind of, like, that's pagan, right? Yeah. It's a whole different thing to Catholicism. But, like, of the few people I've met in my life that, like, swear by fairies, they also swear by, like, Jesus Christ. And I find that hilarious. Like, because it's just, like, these two worlds have come together and they shouldn't, they shouldn't, like, uh, fit together. But in a person's mind, they just, they work. And I don't see, I cannot understand how one can be like, I believe in everything the Bible says, but also it forgets, it forgets to mention the puka. Um, and I swear by the puka as well. It's just, it's, it's a very strange sort of thing. Well, I mean, and so the, the puka probably never went to, to Bronze Age Palestine. Like, yeah, that, that, but that, that's what I mean. Like, it's like, it's two different, it's the mythos of two different cultures colliding head on, um, which I find interesting and hilarious. Um, 
And they remind your man here, the, the aviator, reminds me of that one particular neighbor and the conversation I had about how like fairies are real with that person <laughs> or the one way conversation. I just sat and listened while I was told how real fairies are and I, I didn't really, um, I couldn't really engage. So your man reminds me of that. Um, I can't think of off the top of my head of having been in a similar situation now, but uh, I think there is a sort of a, there is a, a a sense in which to to take those superstitions not at face value, but as kind of cultural knowledge. Um, yeah, yeah. To, to you know, not mess with um, like what what are the, there's which which tree is it that like it's meant to be really bad to get poked by, um, it'll, it'll be cursed, and it's very commonly that uh, cows like scratch themselves against it. So if you, if you get if you get scratched by the thorns, you'll get an infection. Stuff Christmas like tree. Sure. Yeah. The the well-known uh Christmas trees of the west of Ireland. Well, Native. I would argue, I would argue that like that is actually a, a true statement because like um the Irish Forestry Board, like Quilcher Ireland, have basically just torn down any and all native trees in this county and replaced them with Christmas trees. So I mean, give it another couple hundred years and there'd be like, yeah stories about the christmas tree the west of ireland christmas yeah. tree and in, in a couple of hundred years there'll be like some podcast and they'll be saying you know isn't it mad the christmas trees aren't actually native to the west <laughs> of ireland we always think of them as being from there but no they were they were in, they were imported shortly before the great cataclysm <laughs> that is some beautiful references to earlier i love that everybody calling full circle that is amazing <laughs> callbacks um have I missed anything on the basking maw? I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, it's pretty pretty straightforward, I think. Um, just, a, just a straight up spooky thing happened. Um, the Anchesi, the godless Anchesi. Yeah, the Anchesi live to the south of the kind of the main Abeski region, and they like mining. Or they they commonly are miners. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of everything. Cool. Um, given that this has become an impromptu Halloween episode, uh, I want to see folks in the Reddit um, or in YouTube comments and or in YouTube comments. Um, if you're working on any worlds and you have horror stories from your world in a sort of Halloween sort of manner, um, let us know. Let us know. We might we might do a little compilation of some cool ones next uh, when we come back. Um, that'd be kind of fun. What's the equivalent of your world's basking maw? Um, that's kind of dope. All right. Um, is that world building? That's world building. Okay. Now, here's the thing. New Of late, we've been trying to keep the shows to about an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, we are currently at an hour and 45 minutes. And uh, we have yet to talk about uh, my videos and yet to talk about a thing that I, I wanted to talk about Pythagoras and tuning systems with you as well. Mm-hmm. I fear, though, if we do this, this is going to turn into like a two and a half hour show. Yeah. So I think what we should do is we should dispense with the format, go full rogue and just be like, that's it. We did our cooking and build a little bit of world building and then ended the show with a nice circular reference to stuff that came before. Sign it, seal it, deliver it, done. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Cool. All right. So, folks, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we'll get to videos and Pythagoras in the next episode. Presumably. In the, f- 
in the future, let's not say strictly the next episode because you never know. <laughs> let's let's not let's not sign our name in blood just yet. At some stage, I would like to talk to Bill about Pythagoras and tuning systems, and we will top up my videos in the future. I would leave it as vague as that. That's what I think. Um, thank you for supporting the show on Patreon. Uh, I hope you enjoyed. Happy Halloween, and until next time, Edgar out. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs>